0: when I became dangerous.
1: Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast.
0: Hello, I'm Fraser Allen and this is episode 66. Every now and again in this series, I hear from someone who is so driven and so smart in the way they identify and seize upon opportunities that it kind of knocks me for six. And David Brown, whose voice you've just heard, is definitely one of those people. Yet, in a Glasgow accent undimmed by many years of living in London and the Middle East, he humorously and self-deprecatingly describes himself as a lunatic. Well, if that's the case, he's the lunatic behind the hugely successful fintech disruptor Oxygen Finance and now High 55 Ventures, which transforms payroll for the benefit of employees and employers. And all of his startups have a strong social enterprise element inspired by the sense of community he appreciates from his upbringing in Drumchapel. In this fascinating interview, David also tells us about his business adventures in Saudi Arabia and his early days as a music and fashion promoter in Glasgow, hanging out with the likes of Spencer Railton, Craig Ferguson, and his old schoolmates, wet, wet, wet. He also explains the importance in life of jumping on that bus. The interview was recorded in front of a live Scottish Business Network Zoom audience on the 18th of May, 2021. If you enjoy this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Scottish Business Network on Apple Music, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice. A very warm welcome to David Brown, who's a highly successful and disruptive entrepreneur in the, in the worlds of fintech and asset finance. How are you and where where are you today? Hi, Fraser. Thanks for inviting me. I'm stuck in my front living room uh, in, in London. Sunny London. Let's start at the beginning because you, you originally come from Drum Chapel. Uh, and you moved to Clyde Bank. So, can you tell us a bit about uh, those early days? Drum Chapel was quite an interesting place because
1: back then, you know, the, the, you, you, it was very much a community. I mean, it was often said that you know, if you did something wrong to someone in the neighbourhood, you actually didn't need to worry about the police. You had to worry about the neighbourhoods. And and I'm not so sure them them morals or them ethics exist today because um, I think we've eroded some of them. But but, but that's how I was brought up. Um, and um, and then my mum had this really good idea when I was 15 years old to move me to Claybank. And for any of you that actually know Glasgow, back in that period, the Drum Chapel had a gang and Claybank had a gang and they fought each other on a regular basis. So suddenly, I was taken to high school with the gang that we used to fight every month, which was quite an experience in um, learning how to stay quiet. Yeah. Um, and that's where, obviously, I went to school with Marty Pello, Mark McLaughlin, and the guys that went, went, went. Um, what did I want to do when I grew up? It's was difficult, wasn't it, back then? Because you really had one sort of choice. You, you kind of went to the shipyards, really.
0: Um, or, or, or you went to prison. Um, so I chose the shipyards. You trained and worked as an electrical design engineer the government shipyards. Uh, so- yeah, there was a funny story because we, sh- we should make this humorous because it's five
1: o'clock at night. So, I mean, one of, the, one of the things I remember most, for those of you that are old enough, the world used to be a mainframe computing system, which is a computing system that is basically <laughs> driven from one client and in, in, in the workstation you work on just kind of falls off that. And I was getting trained on computer design at that point with an IBM mainframe. And somebody showed me how you could reboot the computer if your computer went down. You went into the big server round. You found the master computer. You put in a code and off you went. And it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon and I went down. So I went to that computer and pressed the button, and nothing happened. So I pressed the button again, I pressed the button again. Eventually, I went back, and my computer came back to life. Unfortunately, I shut down the whole of British shipbuilders exactly the same time. And I got the nickname Bring 'em Down Brown. <laughs> Because I lost British shipbuilders millions of pounds, because before then, you had to save your work. There wasn't an autosave, right. and it's three o'clock, so you can imagine there's two hours of work that's happened after lunch, and no one had
0: saved it, so I wasn't very popular. So uh, would your colleagues at the time have expected that one day you would turn into a bit of a kind of IT entrepreneur?
1: Probably not at that point. At that point, they probably thought I was
0: best um, left to be ignored. But you're clearly a energetic character at the time, because as well as the day job, you're working, as I say, in music and fashion promotion. So can you tell us a bit about that? Why did you get involved and what did you learn from that experience? I was actually one of Scotland's young, youngest Promoters.
1: I mean, I held a fashion show in Kelvin Grove for um, some of um, the leading upcoming Glasgow arts um, fashion designers at that point. In fact, the most famous one is still exists today. A guy called Spencer Rialton. I think he's famous for hats now. And um, and it was just something that I wanted to do. I was interested in music and fashion, so I got involved in club promotions. Um, music promotions and also fashion. Um, so I mean, I, I gave a guy called Craig Hitler, um, Craig, Craig Ferguson, who was known as Bing Hitler. I gave him his first gig in Glasgow. I gave the Wets their first gigs, and I think it was called Daddy Warbucks. If any of you remember that. Um, and but, but but I just I just the problem with promotion is you just lose money. Yeah, because as soon as they're famous, they go off to somebody bigger to promote them. So I kind of realised that I was on a hiding to nothing here. Um, And um, one of my friends, and still my dearest friend in Glasgow, who if you're a Glaswegian, you'll probably know him as Colin Barr. Um, And I'm also really close to Mike, Mike Greaves, who owns a sub club.
0: Mike and I knew each other from when he spent time in Aberdeen in Iran. A club in Aberdeen as well. So you didn't want to carry on losing any more money in the the worlds of music and fashion. So this is when you moved into business and IT, which then spawned a a very successful career in the Middle East. So you tell us, how did that happen? And and tell us the story of of that. It was kind of an extension from mainframes. (laughs) So, you know, about that
1: time, there was a thing called a PC that was beginning to arrive in the market. And um, I was thinking, that looks quite interesting. (laughs) I think I'll go and learn how, how it works. So I went to a company in Hamilton to train me, a company called Datacad, and I wanted to train on PC-based computer design applications, so really early days. And Windows had just come out as an operating system, and you used to have floppy disks that held, what was that, if you were lucky, one and a half megabytes or something, I can't remember, but... But when you think your phone holds 25 gigabytes and I kind of learned that and I think I was just lucky because you know I, I, I talk to people about your life's just a bunch of bus stops and it depends what bus you go on it kind of depends where you're going to get off and that was really my first bus stop where suddenly PCs just took off and there was no one to really manage them. So I ended up being IT director for the world's largest drilling company at the age of 23, 24 years old, right? And suddenly I thought I'd struck the jackpot because I was making back then what I thought was a lot of money um, and really bringing this oil company into the, the modern day world using PCs. I think it was a 286 PC at that point, to give you an idea of how early it was.
0: So... You then but you then moved in from becoming a, a, an IT expert you then moved into sales didn't you yeah that happened in the Middle East because one of my buses and I, I often say I got the wrong bus because I ended up
1: in Saudi Arabia and you, you know that's a whole different world but but it was it was just a bus stop and um and I was approached there to actually stop being an IT director and start to sell to oil companies and at first I just didn't want to do it because these were the type of guys that walked into my door every day to sell to me. So I phoned my mentor, Derek, the guy that trained me in Hamilton, and he says, what are you talking about, David? You're a natural salesperson. Go on and do it. You'll make a lot of money. So I did, and actually he was right, you know, because I, I understood what the clients wanted. So when I walked through the door, I was speaking from a point of relevance. And... um but but that's when I started to mix really my pro- promotional background with my engineering background because it was kind of beginning to blend now these two worlds, and finally I found I could make money from promotion. It was called sales. Well, actually, that's what, what promotion is. So so
0: the two skill sets kind of came in quite well. Somebody who who grew up enjoying the, the clubs and. The music scene in Glasgow and stuff, how did you find the, the culture in Saudi Arabia, what it was like living there? Well, the clubs weren't quite the same,
1: and definitely the alcohol was definitely not the same, I mean, they drink effectively paraffin there, um, and they actually say you have to water it down, or you're blind yourself, and it's Siddiqui, I think it's called, it's been a while since I lived there. Um, no, I, I didn't really blend very well with the Middle East. I just you know, I went there for a single purpose, make some money and um, and then just ended up staying there for 10 years um, something so, so but 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 it was there that my career really took off. I mean, I got approached by a company who just invented something called search technology. and until they came along, you had to remember the URLs in the world wide web. And they had licensed a startup called Yahoo. And they said, do you want to come and work with us? And I thought, why not? You know, that seems really interesting that you can go and search and find stuff on the internet. And that was called open Text Corporation. And I ended up doing the biggest deal in Open OpenTex Corporation's history where I got Saudi Aramco, the world's largest oil company, to deploy it globally to every single seat in every single place in the world. So so that was quite, quite interesting. And then I was then headhunted by another company saying, hey, look, seeing as you get involved in search, we've got this really interesting concept called e-commerce, where we want to allow people to buy stuff from the internet. And that was a language called XML. And I thought, that seems quite interesting. I I quite fancy giving that a go. Well, that was when the dot-com boom happened. And suddenly... I, I still remember people paying $10 million for, a, for basically a CD, and the reality is it didn't work, right? So then they proceeded to spend $800 million trying to make this thing work called e-commerce. And you take it for granted today because we do it, but actually back then it was really difficult, right? It was a whole new language. And um, so, so I kind of did that, and then I, I got there. I was living in Dubai at that point, Believe it or not, at that point in my life, I was living in the president's suite at the Holiday Inn for a year because that's where my boss wanted to put me. So that was quite quite fun, yeah? Um, but, but, but I reached the end of my tenure. I'd made, made enough. And I just wanted to come home. I was kind of saying, I want to close this chapter. I want to come back home. Yeah. Came back home and everybody who wanted to hire me wanted me to send me back out there. And I was saying, but I don't want to go back out there.
0: I came home for a reason. And you ended up in in London, didn't you? Working with uh, the British Iranian entrepreneur Vincent Chengwiz. Uh, and you describe him as one of your your greatest mentors. So, how did that all come about, and why do you rate him so highly?
1: So, uh, why I rated them so highly was um, so Vincent Robert Chengwiz are famous for probably the wrong reasons because they were personally blamed for making Iceland the country go bankrupt during the credit crunch. Um. Um, but the reason why he was one of my greatest mentors is he taught me something that that really helped me in my life. Because go back to my life, the guy from Drumchapel Council Estate, and you you have this myth, and everybody, you probably have it. A lot of people probably have it on on today's call, which is a lot of people are they think money's a god you know, like, you, you, everybody thinks that money is this, everything. And what the brothers taught me is money only has a value if someone wants it. Otherwise, it's worthless. So they, they demystified money for me. I suddenly realized that, you know, 10 pounds is only worth 10 pounds if someone wants that 10 pounds. It's It's like shopping. It's like having a fish supper, right? If you if nobody wants it, it has no value. So they took away that whole fear or greed or whatever it was in my head that money was this magical kingdom and actually taught me that money is only... It's, it's a commodity. And so that was the lesson that really helped me move my mind and start to realise that actually, the more money you give curse people... Better is, especially if you're selling money, right? So, so I, you know, why stop with five million? Why let me give you 500 million? Because I give money, right? And, and then I started to understand how the flow of money worked and how London worked in terms of the,
0: the financing of that flow, and that's when I became dangerous. The second half of the interview continues in a few seconds after this. Do you need a communications expert to help you with your marketing, brand storytelling or strategic content? Find out what I, Fraser Allen, can provide at www.allencoms.co.uk That's Allen with two L's and an E and comms with two M's. And that, this is when you then went on to set up Oxygen Finance. So yeah, but what, what, so it's o-
1: Oxygen Finance and high today. So when you look at it, I, I talked about the community spirit of Drumchapel, and that exists in every venture that I do. So so, so Oxygen was about early payments to SMEs in return for a small discount. And really what it was doing is saying, why is large companies making small companies wait for their payments? It doesn't make sense. Why is Shell effectively borrowing money from a plumber? Because if Shell doesn't think that that's not coming back in the invoice that the plumber gave them, then they're mistaken. And if you think about it that way, then if that plumber's paying 20% for an overdraft, so are Shell. Which doesn't make any sense. So, 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 oxygen was a was was a social enterprise. It was there for a purpose, and its purpose was to remove and increase the cash flow to SMEs, specifically from large corporates. So, so, it had a it had a purpose behind it. Yeah, oxygen went on to I think oxygen now does twenty billion pounds of early payments in the UK, and um, and then got
0: bought by Aragras. Um, so, I mean, what, what other lessons did you learn over your, your time there? Do you think, David, and and what led you to want to move on and and kind of start all over again?
1: What I say is, you know, like, some people call me the founder, and I'm saying, what's a founder? I'm the guy that had the idea. There's 30 people in my company that founded it, but you know, there's no such thing as a founder unless you're making something that's just you. But the reality is, you need a team to found. And, and, and so the lessons that I've learned is you need the team to perform to succeed because the team is the biggest risk for failure in any venture you'll do. Technology is actually quite easy today. In fact, some people can say it's automated, but it's the team and it's how the team play,
0: and it's really getting the team to play right because if you get that chemistry wrong, your business will probably fail. And and then in terms of you then leaving Oxygen, was was that just you kind of Done enough there? You wanted to do something new.
1: I, well, no, I, I went. I, went I, I then moved on to create artificial intelligence because what I realised is that even though you could get paid early for paying early, the clients' processes were never robust enough to actually pay early. Mm-hmm. So I, I then started building artificial intelligence, which was remissa and then provise. So basically, remove the need for checking invoices. Just basically have the AI check the invoice and say it's fine, pair it, right, rather than having human intervention. And and um, and it was interesting because Remisha, um, which happened before high, but Remisha went insolvent. So so Remisha was my first taste. Of real failure,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it went insolvent, but it taught me something. What was that? Do you think? Yeah, sorry. What, why did it fail? It failed because the shareholders pulled out their support, and it just ran out of funding and went in insolvency. Yeah, um, it then revived itself um, through provise, and provise has went on leaps and bounds, and, and it's now been funded by fifty million by by Mastercard and moral leaders.
0: Um, so it proved I was right. I just had the wrong shareholders. And there was another business as well that you are involved in, Violet One, before we get on to High 55. So Violet One was high, um, but Violet One was me working with Robert Chang, he's
1: Vincent's brother. But unfortunately, Robert had a rather large hedge with um, First Group. Uh, and so when the pandemic arrived, first group's share price went from 140 to 32p, and Robert went with them. Right. right. So, but unfortunately, so did Violet, because he was the sole shareholder and funder. So I had to pick back up from there and start
0: again and rebuild the crew and, and start from zero. So tell us about High 55 then, because it's, it's a really interesting model.
1: Yeah, I mean, but it, it comes back to back to community social purpose again, right? I mean, so so I, I kind of left the supplier finance space because I'd been there for 18 years and I was just really, I was bored. I wasn't learning anything. I was just kind of saying, look, I've left a bit of legacy in that market, late payment legislation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I was behind most of that drive to recognise payment culture But I just kind of was done. Um, But what what I realised is trade finance never, ever did employees. So if you think about it, there's a whole world of finance and for suppliers out there called trade finance. Invoice, discounting, factoring, supply chain finance, asset-based lending, yeah? But if you're an employee, there's nothing. So I thought, why is that? So I wanted to go and have a wee look at it because I thought there must be something wrong with employees because or the, the, there must be some nasty legislation or something because there's no finance for them. Um, and, and 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 so that led me to say to my wife, look, I, I want to take my life savings and I want to go and have a look at this thing called payroll, which I've never looked at in my life. I still don't really understand it. and um, And I want to see... If the world has missed a real big trick here, um, or whether there's something really, really wrong to why you can't finance an employee. And I got her permission to do that and start from scratch and throw the kitchen sink in. And it's been the most fascinating journey because there is a note this is what I found in the last year. And by the way, this is why I have five billion pounds of credit now, right? Because what I found was there's an old saying that employees are your greatest asset. But you never thought that they actually were. I bet you never actually understood that your employees are senior preferred creditors in the event of administration. I bet you didn't know there was a government guarantee behind every one of your employees. So I bet you never knew they were actually your greatest asset. In fact... They should be the first asset that any finance or finances in your organisation because they're senior preferred creditors in insolvency. So they will supersede everyone who's lent to your company and they become first. I only learned that in November this year, but but trust me, it was a wake-up call to go, I've just found a really powerful asset class. It's your employees. And they have an asset... And it's theirs. It's actually not you, the employer. So if you think about it, they're in control of this asset. You're not. Mm -hmm. But they can transfer this asset to you and allow you to borrow it. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very powerful. So welcome to high. So what high recognised is payroll is dysfunctional. Payroll's actually not fit for purpose anymore. Because if payroll is causing pain in your employees and that's causing your employees to go to payday lenders or to predatory lenders or to, you know, or any form of high borrowing, you're putting financial pressure into them, which will lead to mental, mental illness. It'll also lead to absenteeism. It will also ha- have higher churn, your, your retention rates, and you have lower productive workers. Is that really what you want? But also, payroll is a big problem for an employer because he's got to find huge amounts of working capital every month to fund payroll. And if you look at the pandemic, if the government didn't step into payroll, there'd been 200 million people made unemployed globally. I mean, it would have had a significant impact because no one had enough cash to fund the payroll. So what High says is basically, wouldn't it be great if payroll reinvented itself so employees can get paid whenever they want to get paid? After all, it is their money. But at the same point, the employer can fund payroll at a time of their choosing because it will be externally financed. And that's what high has done. So high has allowed for the first time ever in the world people to consider their payroll being externally financed by a third party
0: using the employee's asset. And that's what I built. Well, it certainly is a, a brilliant and an interesting idea, isn't it? So how, how has it gone so far? It's gone a bit mental. I mean, like, you know, obviously there's a lot
1: of people looking to fund payroll right now. Um, and as we come out of COVID-19, there'll be a lot of uncertainty around how you're going to fund payroll, where you're going to get financing from. Um, and there's a, But what's, what what's really nice is kind of the tailwind is the big, large corporates are beginning to wake up to employee well-being. They're starting to recognize it. And it's starting to become on the agenda from the largest companies to say employee well-being should come above shareholder value, not below it. And as you see that moving trend move, I mean, we're bang on point. I mean, everything we do is about the well-being of your employees and about them having more financial freedom, more access to the pay that they have earned, and and, and really about changing. I mean, Fraser, what I say to people is we're pay with purpose. And so if you start to think about what I'm saying is I'm I'm saying, if I can change how you get paid, I should influence how you pay and by the way that will lead to more benefits so if you've got credit card debt and i pay you weekly that will save you 25% on the debt repayment to the credit card firm because you're paying a month's compounded interest mm-hmm. if you could pay your mortgage weekly i could reduce the term of your mortgage by maybe even 10% so but but to do that i need to change how you're paid mm-hmm. so 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 that's why we mean pay by purpose and, and everybody's saying, oh, well, I'm a lunatic. And by the way, I am a lunatic, right? Because you have to be a lunatic to do this stuff. You know, there's no sane person in the world that would do this, Yeah. Um, But what I'm saying is, yeah, but the products will move to them because 85% of the UK is on monthly pay, which is causing a lot of problems. If 85% of the UK was on weekly pay, I'm pretty sure you'd have weekly mortgages. I'm pretty sure you'd have weekly mobile contracts, et cetera, et cetera. The products will move to them. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's what we do. So uh, have you got, can you quantify at all how far you think you can take this, how, how big the business will grow? Is, it, is that possible to imagine at the moment? No, no. So we built, so I built
1: High with a company called NTT Data. And NTT Data are the fifth largest IT company on the planet. Um, they've got 127,000 people. And I built it with them in Microsoft Azure. So you, so basically, I, there's an infinite scale on high as a company because it's a product within a major group of corporations. In fact, Mastercard just joined the high party two weeks ago, and now your pay can be powered by Mastercard as well. So so we've built a bit of an army, and um, for global scale, we're already in America. We've just launched high Asia. We've launched high Czechoslovakia. We've
0: opened up in Europe, um, and we're here in the UK. Brilliant. Well, I mean, this is obviously going to keep you occupied for a while, but any other little ideas lurking in in the back of your mind there that we may see develop into another business in the future?
1: No, I mean, we're, we're, we're basically playing with this new toy, right, because it's a new toy and it's a new asset. So one of the areas that we're looking at, and, and we've, we've kind of pull, pulled it off is being able to take away pension the pension deficits by using pay as an asset. So basically getting into employers who have a pension deficit and saying, actually, if you allow us to fund the payroll, we can remove the deficit. And again, that plays right into the well-being that's core to what we are saying, which is that's a well-being issue, right? There's no point in you having a pension deficit. It doesn't help your employees. and also doesn't help your shareholders because you can't sell the company without someone taking the deficit in their account. So we're, we're working on areas like that, and we've kind of we'll be announcing, announcing a pension deal probably in a month, um, and we're just kind of
0: playing with the toy right now. Right. <laughs> well, just a couple more questions for me, Dave, before we move over to the audience. But it'd be nice to get a, a feel for for your your life down in London. I mean, what's give us an idea of a typical weekend in the, the life of David Brown.
1: Yeah, no, you don't want to ask my wife that question. Um, (laughs) A typical life of David Brown is probably sat in front of his laptop doing exactly what I'm doing, but just in a different zone, right? But I'm probably with Asia at the weekend and stuff like that. So um, I I, I don't don't know an entrepreneur that has a quality of life. Right. Right. We're normally... lunatics (laughs)
0: lunatics <laughs> that's where the lunatic stuff comes in okay well just one more question um, uh, which I always like to ask people is: is if you give one piece of advice to the young David Brown back in Glasgow sort of running around the, the, the clubs and stuff what would it be? it's interesting because um, I had the Glaswegians my nephew came
1: down here um, a few weeks ago and you know they've just came out of the shipyards um they've just, they, they, they're finally doing their first expat gig in Paris, doing electricians, they're working in an Amazon warehouse. And they came and visit me in my house, and he's like, oh, big man, I'll come and work with you, I'll do anything, I'll do this and do that. And kind of my advice to him was just carry on taking the bus. Just carry on taking, whenever, it, every time that bus stops and offers you a different journey, take it. Because you have no idea where it's taking you. Yeah, and I saw I, I, I wouldn't change anything, Fraser, in my life. I've had a blast. But but what I would say to people is do not stop yourself getting on a bus because you're scared. You no, know, get on the bus and, you know, it will change your life because every time you
0: present a new opportunity and that will allow you to grow. That's great advice, David. Thanks very much. Really interesting. So, yes, at that point, we moved on to questions from the audience. Many thanks to David. Fascinating guy. And uh, if you'd like to attend one of these live Scottish Business Network events in the future, simply go to sbn.scot to find out more. And I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Thanks for listening and bye for now. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.